Welcome to the Tomahawk Show presented by Uninterrupted. I am your humble co-host, Andrew Hawkins, joined as always with my guy, Joe Thomas. We are in a scramble right now because we just got the, all the breaking news. We had the podcast sealed up, presented, ready to go. And then we got the bombshell that is the Cleveland Browns. Hugh Jackson fired. Todd Haley fired. We had to get back on, re-record, and get reactions. Joe, what are you thinking right now? I was actually on the way to the moon with Elon Musk, going to do a couple-week vacation. But we turned that spaceship around when we got the breaking (laughs) news out of Berea that the head coach and the offensive coordinator had been fired. And we raced back into the studio to be with you to talk about this uh, this day, which was, I'm going to be honest, a little sad for me. Both you and I played for uh, Hugh Jackson. You played for him in Cincinnati, I think. Yeah. We both really liked him as a coach. I've got a lot of respect for him. But uh, we were guys that played a few years in the NFL, so we understand the business side of things. I don't think either of us have ever been blindsided by something in the last five or six years of our career because – we're good at reading the tea leaves. I mean, you, you don't uh, fake it for 11 years in the NFL without being able to read it. <laughs> without being able to read the tea leaves. See that shit coming a mile away. Yeah. So uh, going into this season, I think everybody knew that this was a make-or-break season for Hugh. He'd won one game in the previous two years. He had a new general manager that typically a new general manager comes in and they're going to want to hire their own head coach mm-hmm. and hire their own people. So this was a, a trial season for Hugh. Basically, he had to show big time improvement. I thought eight and eight was what he needed to save his job. And it seems like the pressure of a losing from the last couple seasons and then the, some of the dysfunction behind closed doors and the, the building up of the devastating losses over two and a half years had, uh, had gotten to Hugh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest. He started saying things in the media that were uncharacteristic. A couple of weeks ago, he talked about maybe taking over the offensive game planning and the offensive game calling. And I think the tensions got, got to be too much. And I thought John Dorsey was looking at his young team, especially his young quarterback, mm-hmm. and he felt like he needed to protect Baker and those young players from some of the dysfunction that was bubbling up specifically – the, the power struggle, if you want to call it, between Hugh and Todd Haley. And I think, unfortunately, something he felt had to be done, and he fired both those guys, which yeah. to me was a little bit of a surprise. I kind of thought they'd fire one or the other, but uh, firing both of them clearly speaks to the dysfunction that was happening behind closed doors and the fact that uh, John Dorsey felt like he needed to get rid of all the cancer in the body and give Baker Mayfield – sunshines and roses for the rest of the season to try to continue that maturation progress and process that that rookie is going on. So, so here's my, here's my thing on Hugh Jackson. And like you said, we have a great relationship with Hugh as a person. Um, but I also thought he was a good coach to be mm-hmm. honest. And I understand this is a results driven business and Hugh understands that too. He's one of the people who, who taught us that to be honest, like this is the NFL. You're either catching passes or you're not in the NFL. You're, either, <laughs> you're able to block that uh, blind side the end, or you're not going to be here. You either need to win football games or you won't be the head coach. That being said, the reason why, and people like to call us a huge Jackson apologist, but the reason why that is because I played on that 2016 team. I wasn't on the 2017 team. Our 2016 team went one and 15. We were veterans in that camp. We watched so many veterans get cut with a new analytic approach that was out of the hands of Hugh Jackson at the time um, that would have made our football team not just a little bit better. 
exponentially, expon exponentially better, right? And whenever we've seen that, that was the first year in my career ever in my, all of my years of playing football where I would go into games and think to myself, yo, there's no way we can win this game. We are not good enough, right? And I've, I've never been a part of a team like that. And I'm not saying I've been a part of all great teams. That's the point. It, by NFL standards, we were playing with half a deck. So with that being said, I'm like, man, that's you kind of do the coach a disservice with that kind of roster and expect him to make sugar out of shit. But again, that's what you sign up for. Because the Cleveland Browns weren't Hughes' only head coaching offer. Hmm. So you have to know once you sign a contract, it doesn't matter. What we do in this house is what we do. Um, and you better make a winner out of it or results will take care of it itself. Now, with the firing of both Todd Haley and Hugh, I can honestly say I've seen that coming because uh, I don't know exactly how Don Dorsey makes the decisions, but I know Haslam. If you remember back to the Petten and Ray Farmer situation, it was very similar. We were through that year of 2015. There was turmoil that everyone in the locker room could feel between the head coach and the front office. This guy should be playing. That guy shouldn't be playing. This move should be made. That move shouldn't be made. And they were trying to pit, pit each other against each other so that the other one would prevail as the person who stayed on. And what Haslam did was he threw the whole, the whole body away. <laughs> start over. I'll show you guys. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't, don't bicker. It's like the parent when they're bickering yeah. back. Like, nobody gets the toy. All right? That's right. That's exactly. Nobody that's gets what, the toy. That's what Haslam does in this situation. This power struggle that we've all been seeing since Hard Knocks, whether warranted or not, Haslam is like, well, look, I'm not going to sit here and go back and forth with y'all about who is in it. Both of you go. We, we're not where we need to be anyway. We're on our way to another losing record. So we do have a young, a good young quarterback, so we made that right decision, whether that was Dorsey or whoever. So, yeah, we're fine. We'll start over from scratch. The rest of the year is going to be a rebuilding year because you can't expect to fire your coaches and expect to win games for the rest of that season. We might do better than what we expect, but the reality is no one fires their coaches and gets better. So that being said, they'll get an early jump on the head coaching search. They are now the first team on the market looking for a coach, and we're not even at the halfway point yet. So they should have their pick of the litter. They should be able to save the coins up, go after who they want to get to. Baker Mayfield is exciting. This defense is exciting. Greg Williams has, has this defense playing well. They have Miles Garrett, maybe a future DPOY. They have Denzel Ward, who is playing like a seasoned veteran. Um, so this is a little – this is a more exciting job than it was two years ago, right? And I think that was the thought process. And for Hughes' purposes – it's like, yeah, you may have done, let's say he went to eight and eight. That doesn't mean he would, he would have a longer leash. If John Dorsey wants his own guy, he wants his own guy. You don't want to, it's like in a relationship that the other person doesn't want to be in. I don't care how much you love them, how much you want to put your first, if they don't want to be there or they don't want you there, cut ties. It's like pulling a bandaid off. Yes, go your separate ways, man. It was similar to the Josh Gordon situation. Like JG and Browns didn't mix well. Let him go. Yes, we could use the deep threat. But the better situation, we're going to be better for it. He's going to be better for it. And the same goes, it didn't matter if, if Hugh was able to put a Band-Aid on it. John Dorsey wants his own guy. If he, if he didn't get to pick his guy, which GM like to do, you just prolong in the inevitable, to be honest. So that's my take on it. Yeah, when Hugh got hired in Cleveland, he had San Francisco 49ers, the Giants, and the Bengals basically all offered him their head coaching job. And since it was going to be after Marvin decides to step away, but he had a lot of options. I mean, he was the most coveted coach that offseason because of the experience he had in Oakland. He took an Oakland team to 8-8, eight eight, right in the edge of the playoffs, and got fired after one season. He had shown 
time and time again that he was a good offensive coordinator at a number of different places, including Oakland and Cincinnati. And I think he was an offensive coordinator in Atlanta as well. And uh, for me personally, some of the reasons that I liked him as a head coach, I thought he was a good coach. Uh, because I thought he was good at motivating his players. I thought he was good at motivating and leading his coaches. He got the team to play really hard in the two seasons that I was there, mm-hmm. that we were 1-15 and 0-16, and and which is not an easy task. That's very right. difficult to keep a team together, to keep a team improving, playing hard down the stretch when you're that bad, and mm-hmm. you know that everybody on that team knows you don't have enough talent to win. I thought he was a good football mind. I sat in those meetings. I, I've had a lot of offensive coordinators. I've had a lot of head coaches. Uh, I thought he was at the top of that list of guys as far as football minds. He understands mm-hmm. offense, defense, and special teams. But there was also a little bit of a soft spot in my heart for him because I feel like he was hired under false pretenses a little bit in Cleveland. Yes, he came exactly. to Cleveland thinking that he was going to be building a roster from day one to try to compete for a championship. And he got there, and the first thing they started doing was getting rid of all their good players in an attempt to, for lack of other words, uh, <laughs> rip it down to the studs, save salary cap space and draft picks for a few years, and then try to build it back up. Well, this is the time now that they're trying to build it back up. But unfortunately, losing has a way of changing people, especially a guy like Hugh that is so competitive that honestly I feel like knowing Hugh – those first couple years and then where he is right now, I think mentally that amount of losing pressure over those two and a half years potentially could have changed him as a head coach and a, as a person right now. Yep. He almost is, if I'm getting into his head right now, I'm thinking that he is maybe almost relieved to, to have been fired because the pressure becomes so great. You feel like you're saying stuff and you're doing things that maybe you don't even recognize yourself is doing like for instance the things that he said after that game a couple weeks ago where he said you know I want to be more involved in the offense I need to get this thing right Uh, basically kind of saying I want to take over the role as offensive coordinator Mm -hmm. to me that wasn't the hue that I know that I had come to love as a head coach and I think like I mentioned the the stress and the pressure of going in and putting everything you have in this game plan every single week only to lose I yep. think you can crack, and I, I'm not going to say he cracked, but definitely I want to say that the pressure and that stress had gotten to him, and he's probably feeling almost a sense of relief because for really the whole year he had had seen this ball rolling towards getting fired because everybody knows, like you mentioned, John Dorsey, it's his job. He gets to choose the head coach, and mm-hmm. it, it, even 8-8, eight eight, that might buy you a year. But the second that things aren't going well and he has a reason to fire you, he might do that because you're, even though everyone always says that your trains are hitched together and and you're all pulling the thing in the same direction, that's not always true because in the end, one guy has the power and he's going to want to hire his guy. That's just the way it is in the NFL. I agree. I agree, man. I mean, I I do get frustrated with Pitt and I get it. Like it's, it's, he was one in 31 in the first two years. And even this year, we're what, two, four, and one? Is that the record? Two, five, and one right now. Two, Eight. five, and one? Yep. So with what, three and 36 and one? Yeah, terrible record. It's like one of the worst all time. Worst all time records. And I get it, but I can promise you, we were on one of the worst all time teams. Yeah, we And that's, that's no slight to anybody. It's the reality of it. I was, yeah. I'm a player on that team. So I, what, what do I get out of saying that? We sucked. I would go into games and think like, man, there's no way we can win it. It felt like we were playing on a college football team against Mm -hmm. grown men in some of those games. And me and you, we would have the conversation, man, and it wasn't that we weren't going to fight. Of course we were fighting. 
everybody was fighting everybody was putting their best foot forward and it just wasn't enough man so yeah. but that wears on you and i think i think enough. in a lot of ways that wore on hugh because he was given everything he had he was doing the things that he knew were successful in different places but it just doesn't work when you don't have the talent and i think that wears on you like like you know by the end of my career i, I losing it wore on me i mean it, it changes you mentally i would go home and like honestly i would cry i would get pissed off at people because like yeah you know you're doing everything you possibly can and the results still aren't there and emotionally it's hard to as a man to accept that and just it's it's so difficult it changes you it really does it makes you a bad person like I, really does, I i'm going through rehab right now trying to become a better person after like all the losing that i had in cleveland people don't understand that it really that is so true man you i mean you get home and i would have to sit in the driveway for 30 yeah. and 40 minutes just oh. to like wash the day off of me so i didn't take it home yeah. and and not want to play with my kids you know, that's why I retired. That's why I had to, to cash it in. I'm like, this is going to kill me, you know, but, but that's how bad it was. And it, there was nothing you could do or anybody could do. We were, everybody was working hard. We practiced hard every day. The, the, the players we had, what do we have? Like 25 rookies on the team, 30 it rookies. Insane. It was a it was wow, insane. but they were too young and dumb to pack. They didn't know any better. They didn't know any better. They, they were just trying to remember what time day. the team meeting was. They're, exactly. just on time. They're just trying to figure out the latest dances and show up at meetings on time. <laughs> they worked hard. They didn't know they could just mail it in. So nobody was yeah. mailing it in. We just weren't good enough. And it sucked <laughs> that Hugh was the coach that had to yeah. go through that. But yeah. the record is the record. Results-driven business. And here we are. Hey, I got a question for you. Where did the Browns go from here? That's what does the rest question. of the season look like? You know what? I mean, whew. The, the, the one thing for the players, the reason why this is good, you know, notwithstanding Hugh, Todd Haley, whatever, the dysfunction would have sent the team into a spiral. And I think that's kind of what you've seen in Pittsburgh, is that they weren't, even though they've been in, what, four overtime, they've been in very, very close games. In that game, they didn't even, they didn't look like the same team. And like I said, yeah. 2015 was one of those years where the turmoil between the front office and the head coach, um, or within the coaching staffs, Mm -hmm. It got into the locker room. We felt it. And it was almost like, man, we're, we're kind of wasting our time. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we played way worse than our talent was that season yeah. because we realized that things were happening that were bigger than us that were going to prevent us from winning anyway. Yeah. Again, so I say all that to say I could see them still winning a couple games. If they mm -hmm. get somebody in there to kind of get rid of the turmoil and they can just go talent for talent, they're going to be better than some of the teams they play. Baker is still a good quarterback. Doesn't mm -hmm. have a deep threat. Doesn't have a guy to stretch the field. It's going to hurt him. It's going to limit him. But the defense is still really good. Baker is, is good enough at this point as a rookie, and they still have weapons that they'll sneak a couple of wins in. But, you know, the real benefit is that they get a head, head, head start on the coaching search. But here's the, thing about, here's the thing about Haley, too. And this is what I didn't like about the, the Hard Knocks episode. And I get everyone's like, oh, Hugh is so not open. And, again, I don't want to seem like I'm one-sided in this, but whatever. I didn't, I didn't like the turmoil on the Hard Knocks. It seemed angling to me. You know what I mean? The, like the interaction between Haley and Hugh, like, and and it, it, coaches do this all the time. Like you get on hard knocks. It is, it's an interview. It's an interview for the, the general public. Cause when the general public start to say, you're the next head coach, you're the guy and the writers start to write about it. And the coaches are sending messages to the writers and you know, they're giving them tips here and there. So they put them in the articles and they say, Hey, this guy's the next head coach. Owners read that. That's how you figure out who your next head coach is. And it, and the hard knock situation seemed a little angling. I love Hugh to death. He did it too. He did it in Cincinnati. He, he put himself on display where people got excited about him as a head coach. That's fine. I'm okay with the marketing of it. But when it's something like that and it was such, such a delicate situation, 
it's no surprise to us to see how this turmoil has boiled up into now. It was, again, prolonging the inevitable. This is exactly what I expected when I seen them, that exchange so early on in the process. Yeah, and you talked about turmoil. We recorded this morning, and we were talking about what happened with the Browns yesterday in Pittsburgh, and we said, you know, the second half, they just didn't look like the same team we've seen all season. They didn't have the same fight. They didn't have the same focus. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, they quit down the stretch. But they, they just didn't have that fight that we'd seen. Mm-hmm. And the first half was, was different. They were fighting. They were playing. They were right in it. And what I'm going to attribute that to is the turmoil. And the turmoil on that staff, it bled into that locker room. And the players were feeling it. And it was affecting their play on the field. And, and clearly, I think John Dorsey and Jimmy Haslam and D Haslam saw it. And that's most likely why they made the move right now. They didn't want that to snowball even further and affect the minds and the mindset and the preparation of all those young players in that locker room. Because by and large, veterans are able to block out the noise. They're able to focus on their job. They're able to come into work and do their jobs and, and do it as well as they possibly can, no matter what the circumstances. But a rookie, rookies, they have a hard time doing that. And clearly, I think John Dorsey was sensitive to that, and that's why he decided to make the move. Yeah, I mean, it's just like this, man. Last year, Ben Roethlisberger and Todd Haley had a very similar fallout hmm. in, in Pittsburgh. It was like one of those situations where I, I heard basically it was like, you heard, heard all the Ben retirement talk. Some, a lot of it stemmed from his relationship with, with um, Todd Haley, which is why they, they made a move that people were surprised at because the, yeah. the, the Steelers put up big numbers. Everybody was mm-hmm. rolling. And mm-hmm. even some of their offensive woes this year is because – they have a brand new play caller and people are still getting used to him. Yeah, Le'Veon Bell's not there, but, you know, we haven't seen A.B. really go off the way we've seen him go. And everything just looks different. Ben doesn't even look like the same guy sometimes. And a lot of that happened from the Todd Haley situation. Todd Haley is a very alpha personality. He was an alpha personality. It didn't mix. More than that, you can't go 3-36 and 36 and, and, and be surprised at anything that happens thereafter, right? Here's the silver lining for Browns fans. You have a quarterback mm-hmm. that you know is the future. We love him. We love him. He's, mm-hmm. His personality meshes so well with Cleveland. It's mm-hmm. something to build on for years and years to come. And for the Haslams, this is the first time they're in that situation. That's something they do not want to mess up because they know firsthand how hard it is to get that. So that's the one piece they do know they have. And then they credit John Dorsey for the guy that got him for it. So John Dorsey, whatever you say, goes. <laughs> you find us a quarterback that nobody else could. Let's build it from there. And honestly, the only way to go from here is up. As a jealous person, you know, it's human nature to be jealous. Every time a coach gets fired, I'm always thinking, man, I'm so jealous they had guaranteed contracts. I wonder what he's getting paid, and I wonder how much left of that contract. So, all right, Todd Haley has been in Cleveland for eight games. He got hired in the offseason. I'm sure he got a multi-year contract, right? He probably mm-hmm. got three years, I don't know, six, seven, eight million bucks. Who knows? I, I'd love to find out. The Coaches' contracts are not like players' contracts. Uh-huh. They're not public information unless their agent goes and snitches to the media, which they usually do because they yeah. want to beat their chest about how great they are as an agent. <laughs> Look how much oh, money we I got. got Todd Haley, a 10-year contract for $100 million. But uh, we don't really know what Todd Haley's contract is, but let's just say he signed a four-year, $8 million deal in the offseason. Uh-huh. He's coached eight games and just got fired, so he's going to get paid the rest of the deal. So basically, just if we're just assuming, he got paid a million a year to be <laughs> offensive coordinator, a million a game to be offensive coordinator in the NFL. So mm. even though he just got fired, he's probably still feeling pretty happy two times a month when he goes and takes his walk to his mailbox and picks up his check. 
he's the real winner here. He won every week. <laughs> he was the real winner today. That's a good point. So the Todd real Haley winner of the day is Todd Haley. Even though he got Start of the week. He just got hired and he's got some guaranteed money coming to him for a few years. Oh man. So who who are the candidates for the Browns? Do you have any candidates in mind, Joe, or is it too fresh? I have no idea. You know, everyone wants to say that Lincoln Riley, who's the head coach at Oklahoma, is going to be the next guy because he's so creative and he's got this great offensive mind. But personally, I'm not always a big fan of going into the college ranks because I think being a college head coach is so drastically different than being an NFL head coach. It's almost impossible to predict if you can be a good NFL head coach based on what you do in college because – by and large, the three most important things to being a successful college head coach are recruiting, recruiting, and recruiting. And then after that, that order. you got to be okay at developing talent, and you got to have a good offensive and defensive coordinator. But other than that, it's all about the talent that you bring in. Yeah. And in the NFL, that you, have, you have absolutely nothing to do with the talent that gets there because generally your general manager is the one that brings in the talent. He's evaluating it. And there's a draft. So you can't just have better boosters like Alabama and better recruiters that you get all the best talent. So in the NFL, for the most part, except for the quarterback position, talent is somewhat level across the league from top to bottom. And in the NFL, it's about managing rich adult personalities because no matter who you are as a head coach or a coach in the NFL, you're going to have a lot of guys in that team that are making a heck of a lot more money than you. that are a lot more famous. They're a lot more powerful and they're going to tell you no, if you tell them something in a meeting and you got to understand how to manage and handle people so much more because when you're a college head coach, you're basically the governor of the state. You're the president of the university. You're the most powerful, influential person. And if you got some 18-year-old zit-faced kid telling you no, you're going to tell him to go pound sand and go run stadium steps until you get tired. And if go he does pound sand, pizza face. Pizza face? <laughs> so I, I, I'm not saying Lincoln Riley couldn't be a good head coach, but I'm just saying it's difficult to predict because the skill set you need in the NFL level is completely different than what it takes to have success at college. Yeah, and I, I, I do agree. Um, the only caveat to that is the NFL is changing, man. It really is. And I know that's a really blanketed statement, but the, the yeah. reality is these, Don't go guys out on are, a limb. these guys are young and they need to be related to. So the benefit of a college coach in this climate of the NFL, as you see all these young guys, Joe, as we played towards the end of our career, we felt like dinosaurs in that locker room. This is in 2016 and 17. <laughs> We felt like we were 100 years hey. old because we couldn't relate whatsoever. Hey, tell me if I'm wrong, but we got along better on a social level with Kyle Shanahan yes. than we did with a lot of our teammates because we were a lot closer in age with him. I That's still the point. Kyle. Yeah, we were <laughs> like, what, 37? He's like four years older than me, and I was playing with a bunch of guys that were 21 and 22 when I was in my 30s. Right, dude. I'm hang I still hang out with the coaches on that staff. We're <laughs> We're closer in age to them than the players. So the benefit of bringing a college coach in is because they know how to deal with those young personalities. They relate to them better because they've seen that, uh, that kind of evolution before the NFL coaches have who are still doing it old school, who are still doing it from 15, 20 years ago, which is the profile the player has changed. So guys like Lincoln Rally kind of excite me. Guys like Matt Campbell in Iowa State kind of excite me. Offensive guru. Um, understands young players, gets the most out of his guys, has turned the program around. Eric Bieniemy out in um, Kansas City, the thing they're doing with that offense with, with Pat Mahomes, 
who, yes, he's a different player than Baker Mayfield, but they're getting super creative. They're using their weapons. I think those are the kind of guys we should be looking for in Cleveland. All right, boys and girls. I got one name for us that you need to keep an eye on that I think would A, would be a perfect fit, and B, I think he would be that young, smart, relatable offensive mind that would be an excellent head coach that I think he is going to be highly coveted. And just watch. The Browns might go after this guy, and that's Matt LaFleur. Mm. You know his brother from his time in Cleveland. Matt LaFleur is a Kyle Shanahan disciple, just like uh, Sean McVay is. He runs the same type of offense. He is currently the offensive coordinator for the Tennessee Titans. I'm not saying Marcus Mariota has set the world on fire this year, but I think he's playing better. Mm -hmm. He's running an offense that fits his skill set. And I think Baker Mayfield has a skill set that would also do really well in this offense. So you just watch. I'm I'm telling you right now, Matt LaFleur might be the front runner for the Browns job. Mm, I like that. I do like that name a lot, man. You're right, because the offense is it is tailor fit to to Baker Mayfield. All right, enough Brown stuff. I think we need to kind of move on to the rest of the show. Yes, that's a very good idea. Um, if you're listening, again, make sure you're going to my Twitter and retweeting the Mountain Dew tweet. <laughs> now that we lured you in with Brown's talk, it's time to go retweet the Mountain Dew tweet so I can get my, my Mountain Dew The most important thing that's happened today is you retweet the Mountain Dew. Hold on. We got breaking news. Did you read the Mountain Dew tweet? <laughs> they are going to build me a statue if we get 20,000 retweets. Oh. And it is, it's all Browns Kingdom is talking about today. And then um, also Hugh Jackson and Tyler Haley got fired. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. You're too right. reliable. Too, too predictable. All right. I think that's good with the, the breaking news we had here in Browns fandom. Let's get back to our regular show, Joe. Welcome to the Tomahawk Show, presented by LeBron James's Uninterrupted. Please interact with the show by following us on social at Tomahawk Show. And of course, be sure to hashtag Tomahawk. With you, as always, my co-host, Andrew Hawkins, and myself, Joe Thomas, and the lovely Zerm. Everybody's favorite Cleveland Browns maniac and all Cleveland sports fan. How are you guys doing today? Joe, we're doing all right. There's some turmoil around the Browns, but, you know, it's not any different. I hadn't heard about it. Yeah, I don't know if you guys are up to date. Turmoil? What? I don't know if you guys are up to date on, on the drama, but you know what? I'm not letting it ruin my weekends anymore, you know, so we're, uh, we're doing all right. What's going on with you? Thoughts on the, thoughts on the Red Sox winning the, winning the series? <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I didn't watch one minute of the World Series. Yeah, well, welcome to the rest of America because I don't think anybody watches baseball. <laughs> <laughs> well we gotta ask we gotta bring in nat of course as always we've got natty ice here she's a californian and the, the dodgers were in the world series she's probably a giants fan though super, being that she's from super giants so, tell us uh were you one of the few people in the world that watched the world series this year um i probably only watched like five minutes of it but all i'm gonna say is yes i'm a giants fan so i'm just happy the dodgers lost Mm. oh there you go there you go that that makes sense i guess they're they're kind of rivals i'm not i'm not a big baseball guy i cheer for a couple teams i grew up in milwaukee so i cheer for the brewers which the, the team they almost made it we were really excited i think uh being from a small state in wisconsin and a small market team when when your team has success and you get close to the world series it brings an excitement 
um, through the neighborhood, through the state, because not only if you're not a Brewers fan, but like if you're a bar owner or you own a business, like there's a huge uptick in economics from having like a small market team have so much success. So it's easy to jump on the bandwagon, but I also cheer for the Indians. Obviously I've been in uh, Cleveland for 11 plus years. And uh, even though I'm not diehard fans, I still like to watch the games when they're on and they're playing meaningful baseball. But Hawk, were, were you a, uh, a Pirates fan growing up, being a PA native? No, I was a, I was a Yankees fan because I was a fan of people really? who win a lot. Um, oh, wow. So, I mean, I wasn't like – I live like 60 miles outside of Pittsburgh, which is like everyone where I'm from are Pittsburgh fans. The Steeler country is Pirates. But I wasn't so close that I was like super duper invested. So I would just kind of cling to players or great teams, and the Yankees were one of those teams. But I did play until I was 16 years old, baseball. Oh, wow. Yeah, so boring. <laughs> I would be. Were you good? I was pretty good. I mean, I was like, I wasn't going yard very often. I was a little guy, but I would consistently get on base. And if I got on base, I would steal every single pitch and no one could throw me out. <laughs> and then I was a pretty good fielder. Um, and then like for the last like four years of my baseball or three years of my baseball career, like so Pony and a uh, Colt, I was just pinch running, and I'm like, dude, what am I doing here? This is like the biggest waste of my time between practice and games or forever. I sit on the bench, and when the dude who hits the fence every time gets on base, I have to run for him, and that's all I do. Mm -hmm. So I hung up. So basically, you were a track <laughs> yeah, I was playing baseball. Yeah, exactly. I was just taking up roster <clears throat> spots, so it was it was mm -hmm. terrible. And you had a small strike zone. So that was a, a big part of it. They walked you like, get low. My knee is on my kneecap in my stance. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Could you imagine uh, if I, the Brewers would have played uh, the Astros in this World Series? That would have been awesome. They might. I, I would have been really happy. I know. I, I mean, I love the teams, but from a national um, appetite perspective, I don't know if they would have made the, the TV available or the, the game available on national television. <laughs> well the rate the ratings for this world series have been terrible so like yeah, i don't i'm gonna know. push back yeah i'm pushing back on that notion because i feel like across america in baseball if it's small market teams and I, maybe this goes for anything like the team that's the perennial underdog the small market that doesn't have a chance it gives people across the country somebody to cheer for but if it's the dodgers and the red sox these giant salaried rosters full of just paid players that are bought because they have a bigger city and a bigger TV contract and there's no salary cap in baseball. Nobody really cares. Like those are teams that people don't want to see either one of those teams win. So unless you're like in LA and you're a hardcore Dodgers fan or you're in Boston and you're not, somehow not tired of winning <laughs> world champions by now after watching the Patriots and the Celtics and the Red Sox win so much in the last 25 years, and you actually care and you're still tuning in, I, I, I just feel like nobody cares and nobody wants to see the Boston area win any more than they already have. But what about when it's two underdogs? Like, no one wants to watch two underdogs play each other. That's a good point. If it was, if it was like Boston versus Milwaukee. Yeah, like, I could see that because then we'd all cling to the underdog and the rest yeah, of Yeah, yeah, all right, I'll give you that. So it needed to be one underdog, but if it was like two nobody. But it sucks. Nobody's watching like Rudy do one on ones with Rudy. <laughs> That's right. Like that's called high school football. Rudy on a team of Rudy's isn't a movie. Nobody nobody's going to watch that. 
That's Jonestown, PA, Friday nights. <laughs> exactly. Nobody wants to watch that. <laughs> All right. Well, All right. Let's let's get into three. No, third. let's not. Let's talk about All my right. my version of the LeBron hug happened this week when. Oh, let's talk when about Mountain it. Dew tweeted me. Oh, that was cool. That that it was, was a special moment when you guys. It's funny because we were just talking about the best nights of our life. That was probably <laughs> the best night of my life. I screenshotted it. I sent it to all my friends. And for those of you who don't know or don't have a Twitter, Mountain Dew must have obviously they're huge fans of the Tomahawk Show. They listened in. They tweeted me and the show, and they said, "Okay, game on. There's twenty thousand people in your hometown. If you get twenty thousand retweets on this tweet." Mountain Dew will build a statue for Andrew Hawkins Day. And that was even enough for me. The tweet, I'm just going to build a statue out of that. That was, like I said, my version of the LeBron hug. We're at like 2,500 retweets. Oh, almost there. Yeah. Just a couple more. Just a few more. And I'm going to have that flowing green statue of Mountain Dew. Yeah. So I wonder, are they going to make it a a wax figurine? Or are they going to make it out of bronze? And my go to italy and get a block of granite in my mind have michelangelo chip it out for you <laughs> in my mind it'll sub, it'll be somewhere in between there it'll be <laughs> a clear plastic statue with a hole in the top that you could just fill up with mountain dew and as Ooh. the mountain dew goes to the top it starts to fill out what what the statue is and you can see all the features and mm. that's how i've been dreaming about it so if you're listening and you have a twitter even if you don't have a twitter go create a twitter we have what how many how many listeners do we get per episode joe do you remember we're over a hundred thousand. A hundred and ninety-eight thousand so on a low all end. We, so all we need is twenty-five percent or less. Yes. That hundred and ninety-eight thousand, since the math is off now that you've lied. <laughs> to retweet and we get an Andrew Hawkins hollow Mountain Dew statue. Made oh. They didn't say what size, but it'll be awesome. But do you do you realize there's not anything more in life that makes sense than me having a Mountain Dew statue? Mm-hmm. But you recently told us you were trying to dry out your Mountain Dew habit. I so know. has that reversed now that Mountain Dew has shouted you out on social media? Do you know what? Has Mountain Dew heard that you are trying to ease up on, on Mountain Dew? Conspiracy theory. Oh. I'm probably the number one consumer of Mountain Dew in the country. And they're like, oh, <laughs> shit. We're about to lose them. Quick. Someone <laughs> get on social. Make That's this happen. Point. Otherwise, they're probably going to start losing money. If I stop drinking Mountain Dew... They'll probably go under. Yeah, they saw their sales start to drop in the kind of yeah. New York, LA area, and they were like, "They're checking my ounces." They were like, "Hold on, something's not right." <laughs> get get our top analysts in here. We'll put a pin in that. But if you're listening, go retweet the tweet. It's on Joe's social. It's on my social. Um, and I need this Mountain Dew statue. I'm very needy right now. Um, it's like the LeBron hug. It's the LeBron hug heard around the world via Mountain Dew. This episode is brought to you by HP Plus. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, any time you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six free months of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. All right, man, it's time to get to three and out. Let's start talking some foosball, all right? So my first three and out here, first down. Are we not giving the Carolina Panthers enough love? Right now, they're five and two, and they just throttled the Baltimore Ravens on Sunday. To me, they look legit. They came back from a big deficit a couple weeks ago against the Eagles, and Cam Newton is playing 
lights out right now. Their defense is, is playing really well. Uh, this is a complete team. This is a difficult team for anybody to face. And I'm, I'm believing them. I, I've been kind of on their bandwagon for a little while. They've, they've got some good wins. Obviously, I mentioned the comeback against the Eagles, the throttling of the Ravens. Uh, they beat the Bengals by 10. And, uh, of course, they beat the Cowboys and the Giants, but not as impressive. But I like, the, I like the Panthers. I think Cam Newton, like I mentioned, is playing great. They're running the ball well. They know what Christian McCaffrey is. Um, all over, I'm just a big fan. Yeah, I like the Panthers, too. I, I picked the Panthers to win this week. I'm a big Cam Newton fan. They have a bunch of uh, versatile players at the receiver position where I always look, especially for a guy like Cam, who if he doesn't have it, it's not – is he's not going to be able to maximize his value. I don't think they have anybody to write home about quite yet. They have a young guy who DJ Moore, who's a rookie who I think is going to be good. Um, Curtis Samuel is a versatile guy. He gets runs out of the backfield. He catches the rock, but he doesn't have like that one guy, like that Steve Smith security blanket. Greg Olson was typically his deep threat, to be honest, down the middle. But Greg Olson is 51 years old, knows where, knows where he was when we put a man on the moon. Um, he's like that old, so he's not quite stretching the field. But if he had that, I would, I would feel better about the Panthers' like long-term trajectory. They're just a, they're just a, a good team to me that'll be out in the second round at the latest of the playoffs. Mm. Wow. Okay. All right. Second down. Are you buying or oh, selling? I shut that shit down. My bad. Go ahead. No, no, that was good. I, I I thought that was the appropriate amount of time to spend on first down. After that. You're just beating a dead horse. We're yeah. saying the same thing. We're buy, We're both buying uh, the Carolina Panthers. Old school football. Three yards in a cloud of dust on first down. I like it. Go ahead. Let's move on. Are you buying or selling the Houston Texans? They are coming off their fifth consecutive win on Thursday night. They throttled the Dolphins by almost 20 points, and they're looking pretty good. Deshaun Watson, all of a sudden, he's looking like Michael Jordan, just like we said in the offseason. Just like we called it. Look, I never understood why people were giving Deshaun Watson crap like he wasn't good anymore. Like, he was still putting up really good numbers, even when they were like, oh, he made some bad decisions or he wasn't doing this or he was taking hits. He was still consistently passing for 300-plus yards. So I, I didn't really get it. I knew it would take time for him to kind of bounce back from that injury, but he's playing the way I thought he was. He, he was killing it last year. It was him and Carson Wentz kind of going neck and neck. And even now, even Carson, they both kind of bounced back and, and they're getting pretty close to that form that they had last year. Well, I think this is just the classic nature of the NFL where every fan and every media member, they want to overreact to everything. They want to be full of hyperbole. So when Deshaun Watson has like a crappy game, oh, he's horrible. He's going to be a bust. Everybody wants to get labeled either a bust or uh, an all-pro. There's like nobody in between. And for me, I see Deshaun Watson sort of in between. He's kind of like a top 15 guy, but not much better than that yet. I mean, I think he's got a big, huge, high ceiling. But right mm -hmm. now, he's kind of in the middle of the pack for me, which is not a bad thing because we got a ton of franchise quarterbacks right now in the NFL. He does a lot of really good things. Uh, I get a little bit concerned about the hits that he takes because durability could be a factor. But you know what? Like I mentioned on my Twitter this week, Bill O'Brien apparently is a massive Tomahawk fan because early in the season when the team <laughs> was struggling, we said, stop coaching him and putting an offense around him like he's Tom Brady. He's not. That's not what he does best. He needs to be running these play action, get him running, get the ball to the edges, and then 
give him the, the, the Kyle Shanahan offense, right, where he's able to buy time with the play-action pass. His super speedy receivers are able to run down the field. You don't have to put so much pressure on the offensive line to just stand back there and block for a spot in the pocket. And then that will also give Deshaun Watson an opportunity to make uh, ad-lib plays within the confines of the offense rather than just having him stand back in the pocket for three seconds and then try to find a lane, right? So right. he is clearly – uh, he, as in Bill O'Brien, clearly listened because they've changed yeah. what they emphasize. I think even ESPN talked about it this week, how they're running so much more play action. They're running the ball to the edges more, which gets those linebackers to suck downhill, creates separation between your secondary and your linebackers. And DeAndre Hopkins is benefiting. He's playing outstanding. He uh, is doing a great job for Deshaun Watson. And I'm not exactly totally buying the fact that the Texans are for real because I think as a team, uh, they really haven't faced and beat anybody that good. If you look at their schedule, they've beat the last five games, the Dolphins, the Jaguars, the Bills, the Cowboys, and the Colts. There's not a playoff team in there. Let's be honest. Uh, the Dolphins, <laughs> who I thought were actually pretty decent early on in the year, right now have Brock Osweiler as a, as a quarterback. And he's a Ooh. guy that uh, we saw in Cleveland – and what were your thoughts? I, I'm not ready to say that he's going to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> he's, he's a good leader, uh, a good guy, but I, I wouldn't put him in my top 32 starting quarterbacks in the NFL. Okay. You had Watson at 15-ish? I got him right in the middle. I think he's right now he's a middle of the pack with a ceiling to go much higher. I think he's top 10. Wow. Maybe we're going to have to do a uh, Andrew Hawkins top 10 quarterback draft and let me ridicule it. That has to be after my top 15 left tackle draft. Mm -hmm. I honestly couldn't name you 15 left tackles. <laughs> I couldn't name you 10 starting left tackles in the NFL That's right okay. now. You got any takes on the Houston Texans or you just want to talk left tackles? <laughs> I love talking left tackles. I already gave my Houston Texans take. Three more yards in a cloud of dust. Let's go to third down, third right. and four. Let's do it. Go. Should the refs be getting fired midseason? We saw Hugo Cruz get fired last week. He was the guy that, if you don't remember, he missed a really blatant false start uh, in the Chargers versus the Browns game that resulted in a touchdown. In that game, if you guys remember, I know you guys are huge Browns fans, but there might be a couple people out there that didn't see the game. Um, Russell Okung jumped offsides clearly well before the snap. A bunch of the Browns defenders just stopped because they saw, everyone saw it. And even Russell Okung stopped, and Philip Rivers continued the play, threw a touchdown pass. They never threw a flag, and the touchdown was good. So the NFL came out and actually fired the guy. Hawk, do you think it's a good idea that the NFL just starts firing officials midseason? Yes. Yes, for the sport, I think it's a good idea. If you make bad calls like that, get rid of them. I think the fans would appreciate it. So many times, especially as a Browns fan, when you're watching these games and you see these crucial plays these missed calls that are blatant that we all know should have been called we know they're missed calls and there's never any um audience facing consequence for it it does ruin the game for people a little bit like this is no big deal browns fans although we didn't get that win and although that was a huge play in the game i can tell you they felt better about that that guy having consequences for us losing the game because we care about it and honestly i think it'll help with the checks and balances amongst refs make the calls make the right calls or we're sitting your ass home, just like we do the players. Mm, hot take. I, I actually think it's a it's a bad decision because what we're going to see now is if this is the status quo, if an official misses one call that's high profile, 
now the public perception and the public pressure is going to mount against that guy. And I think the NFL will be unjustly firing guys and replacing him with people that aren't ready because that public perception is always going to mount after a game and the pressure is going to mount and they're going to have to fire these guys who by and large could be really good officials. So I think it's more important and I think it's a better strategy to wait at the end of the season after you have 16 games of data to look at it and then decide, okay, this is a ref we want or we don't want and we can replace him with somebody better. Just the way a GM would do, right? He's going to look and say, you know, Andrew Hawkins is not a very good slot anymore, but is there somebody better we can replace him with? He dropped that critical play. The public pressure is mounting on him, but we don't have a better option. So we can't just get rid of him because the public is out there with their pitch force. Yeah, but the, I've been fired midseason before. Yeah, because they had a better replacement. But we don't know if that's the case. They thought the they had a better replacement. <laughs> they thought they had a better replacement. I don't think this is just like a, hey, you made one bad call, you're no, fired. it's not. No, no, you're right. It's not. They, they said that it was because of consistently bad remarks, right? Not remarks, uh, grades. Right. So it's like this was the icing on the cake. So we can't be scared to replace him with bad refs if he himself is a bad ref. You don't have much to lose. Hey, that's a, that's a good take, Andrew. I, I like what you're saying, but I, I still disagree. Okay. Wait till after the season, then get rid of him. His name was Hugo. Yeah. Here, oh, here, one, here's one more take on officials, though. This is what I would like to see more of. I would like to see more accountability to the media with the officials, right? Um, after a game, they do talk to the media kind of briefly, but I think mm -hmm. there needs to be more media availability for officials to have to explain themselves, to be grilled the same way players and coaches are, so that we can get like more clear understandings of what happened out there on the field. I feel like forever and ever, the NFL has coddled their officials and protected them from the media, unlike the way that the players and coaches are just lambasted consistently from media and fans. And I, need, I think we need to stop it. The game is too important. There's too many high stakes right now in the NFL, especially with legalized gambling. And officials have too much to do with the outcome of the game to protect yep. them the way the NFL does. I agree. That, that's, a, that's a really good take. I think it should be like a circle of life because everybody's important to the game now. Everybody should have media availability, even the media. I should be able <laughs> that's as a, a great point. I like that. I should be able to interview the media on something <laughs> they wrote. Awesome. Like, hey, explain yourself. Now, do you know uh, what cover two is and why we were in that coverage in that point in the game? <laughs> and I, I want to – everyone should just be interviewing each other constantly. <laughs> wow. Now that we're in the media, we're really becoming the horrors of wanting more media. <laughs> we need more answers to everything. That's what we need is more media. All right. The marquee matchup. And this is kind of exciting for us. We've been big Fitz Magic fans for a while. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about it. So in Tampa, the Jameis Winston experiment, it seems like it's almost over. I mean, are they going to ever bring him back? Like he got benched just a couple weeks after coming back from the suspension. So I got to think that his term in Tampa has got to be almost over. Well, Jameis Winston is second in the league in interceptions and he didn't play the first three weeks of the season. <laughs> so, Ouch. I mean, it's funny because you remember that draft? It was him and Mariota. And it was like, oh, who do you take? Who do you take? And here we are now where they're both not that good. Well, I think that's why it's important not to grade a rookie quarterback or a second-year quarterback on his career until like five or six years down because so often we see the first year of a quarterback's career that he's, oh, he's great. 
he's the next Michael Jordan. And then the second year, teams kind of figure him out a little bit. And then the third year, they're like, oh, he stinks. Or the other way around. Like, he's really bad in the year one, and then he gets a little better in year two, and all of a sudden now he's a stud in year three. It takes a long time to develop a quarterback. It takes a long time for us to exactly find out who these guys are. And it wasn't just a couple years ago when everyone was talking about how great Mariota was, how great Jameis Winston was. And now, I mean, I think Mariota's still uh, an okay quarterback. He's still a guy that's – he's all he's right. Probably, but it's, He's probably not top 20. Now people want to say Jameis Winston is a bust. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's played in 48 games. He's thrown 50 interceptions, and he's fumbled 21 times. Ouch. He has 71 turnovers in 48 games Mm. we are who we are joe it's he's not a good decision maker i I always have this theory of of players you are who you are you're like you're not able to you're not able to say it again to 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 compartmentalize who you are as a person Jameis winston has made bad decisions off the field (laughs) that's not going to change when he gets on the field i'm being dead serious like like crab legs aren't we it's a bad idea to steal crab legs if you can't in your mind connect the dots and say, hey, this is a bad timing and a bad idea to do this thing, you're not going to get on the field and, and, and be able to turn that off. He is a bad decision maker with a really good arm and with all the makings to be a quarterback. He just happens to be athletic, but his decision making on the field is bad. Hey, you and I were stealing ramen noodles in college, man. We, we were just stealing to get by. We just wanted some calories. He was going for uh, the five-star dining white, white tablecloth experience. Yeah. That was the mistake. I would have taken – I'd rather him take money under the table than steal yeah. crab legs. I mean, if you're stealing bread to, like, survive, like, we get it, right? Okay, that's yeah, just exactly. a survival mode. If you're stealing crab legs, that's like, dude, you're already rich. Like, you don't need I, to steal stuff. That'd be like he might have, Andrew I Hawkins think he the, stealing in L.A. right now. He doesn't need it. I think he won the Heisman already by then. So it yeah. was like, you know you have money coming. Just start taking it from, like, Adidas or something. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that uh, Louisville coach? Oh, Patino. He, he was he was the Adidas guy, right? He had the oh, Adidas. Patino, yeah. Paying oh man, a lot of people had the Adidas deal. That yeah. thing's coming. That thing's unraveling. Hey, I got another take for you. All right. I just realized. Okay, the 2014 draft, NFL draft. Listen to these names: Jadavian Clowney, Sammy Watkins, Khalil Mack, Odell Beckham, Aaron Donald, Kyle Fuller, Ryan Shazier. I say all that to say because 2014 was like a really really good draft. 2015. Let me. I'm going to read them in order. First round. You ready? Okay. Jameis Winston, Marcus Mariota, Dante Fowler, Amari Cooper, uh, Brandon Sheff, Leonard Williams, Kevin White, Vic Beasley, Eric Flowers, Todd Gurley. That was a good one. Trey Waynes, Danny Shelton, uh, Andrus Pete, Devontae Parker, Melvin Gordon, Kevin Johnson, Eric Armstead, Marcus Peters, Cam Irvin, Nelson Aguilar, Cedric Agumbie. Is that how you say it? A tackle? Maybe. You don't know. Bud Dupree, Shane Ray, DJ Humphreys, uh, Brashad Perriman, Byron Jones. We get it. Philip Dorsett, Demarius Randall. Do you get where I'm going with this? We get it. That's an ugly draft, dude. This is I mean, why. I'm calling a spade a spade here. <clears throat> this is why it's important not to evaluate a draft, A, on draft day, or even after <laughs> a year, because you really don't know about these guys until three years. Bill Parcells said it best. You don't know what you have with the player until after three years. So, like, as fans and media, everybody wants to make these sweeping generalizations quickly. After one game, after one year, after even 
18 games, like, oh, this guy is this or that. We want to know, but it takes a long time in the NFL to figure out what you got. And uh, you're talking about that draft. Um, what did you, was that, 2015? Mm-hmm, that was 15. Hawk, you mentioned Todd Gurley. Now, I remember back in the 2015 draft when the Rams drafted Todd Gurley, he was coming off of a knee injury, and people said, oh, you're drafting an injured running back 10th overall? You guys are idiots. Like, what a bad pick. But if you look back in the first round, I would say that was probably the best pick in the entire first round. If that gets drafted over again today, Tampa probably takes Todd Gurley number one overall. And at the time, they were panned for what they did. So uh, draft day, you can't ever tell how good you did because you just don't know what these guys are going to end up being. 2015 might have been the worst draft in the last 15 years. You think 2015 was bad? Let's look at 2013. Ready? Here, I'm going to give you a couple names from 2013. I'll just read you the top 10, right? Eric Fisher, number one, Kansas City. Luke Jokel, number two, Jacksonville. That was two offensive tackles. I know Hawk was loving those picks when they came in. And then Deion Jordan for the Dolphins. Lane Johnson for the Eagles. Ziggy Ansah from Detroit. Barkevious Mingo, Cleveland. Jonathan Cooper, Arizona. Tavon Austin, Rams. D. Milliner, the Jets, uh, Chance Warmack, the Titans. That was your top 10 right there. Uh, there's Half of those dudes aren't in the league anymore. Not in the league. How about that? A lot, lot of offensive linemen. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the reason that's why you don't problem. have the offensive linemen because they never pan out. <laughs> top 10 offensive linemen never pan out. That is an ugly draft. DeAndre Hopkins goes 27. How about that? I remember the Browns picked Barkevius Mingo at 6. And they said, well, there was nobody else to take. It was just a, a weak draft. And I'm looking down. Oh, it would have been nice to have uh, DeAndre Hopkins. <laughs> Le'Veon Bell would have been still solid. Ball. That guy's all right. Le'Veon Bell was uh, second round that draft. Yeah, he was okay. I've heard of that guy. Travis Kelsey went in the third round. <laughs> Tyron Matthew. Tyron Matthew should have been a first round pick that year. Yeah, but he smoked weed in college. So that, that guy's yeah. evil. He's an evil person. Oh, he's horrible. <laughs> Get rid of him. He's probably the man. only guy in the NFL that's ever smoked weed in college. <laughs> exactly, man. Matt would still be looking for a job right now. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, anyways, right. moving on. Please, people, don't judge me for my painter analogy. <laughs> that was good. That, that one's going on YouTube for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. If you hire a painter and you didn't know what color he was going to paint, <laughs> and he started painting it tie-dye. You could get a good look at a T-bow by sticking your <laughs> head right. up. Oh, okay, boy. Take the butchers up. All right, here we go. Yeah, we didn't even talk about Fitzmagic, but who cares? We love Fitzmagic in the story. Let's time. Let's let's transition to a a Webby Award nominee worthy edition of Am I Tripping? Mm. All right, start us off, Zern. What we got? All right, guys. Um, we were talking about the Carolina Panthers. Now, I know the Saints, you know, we look at the Saints, we talk about them as a contender, but are we, are, am I tripping or like, are the New Orleans Saints legitimate Super Bowl contenders this year? They just knocked off the Vikings in a big way in Minnesota last night. They're six and one. Like, the Saints are really, really good. Should we be talking way more about them as like legit Super Bowl contenders? Yes. I think I had them to go to the Super Bowl. I picked two different versions of the Super Bowl, like ESPN. <laughs> You're really sure analyst. of your Super Bowl picks, so you made sure to cover all the bases. <laughs> I picked the Patriots in both of them, clearly, because I'm a former Pat myself. <laughs> um, and then I picked the Rams to go, my ESPN. And then I think on here I picked the Saints to go. But we had Lance Moore on that episode. Mm. So I think that so might we also kissing his ass. Yeah, we were, you know, typical ass kisses here. But, yeah, so the Drew Brees, 
probably number two in MVP voting right now behind Patrick Mahomes. Agreed? Did you see his stats last night? No, were they terrible? <laughs> he had 120 yards passing. Yeah, but he's still had he's he's had enough that like yeah. no, he's played the well. previous weeks. If he just does what he's been doing, that yeah. you won't even realize that. But I think that's why they're legitimate Super Bowl champs because they're just not relying on Drew Brees to throw for 350 every night like they used to, right? It was like, all right, Drew Brees is going to have to score 40 points, and uh, the defense is going to have to at least put 11 guys in the field a couple times, and then they have a chance to maybe win it in overtime. Now it's like. Oh, the defense is playing pretty good. Special teams good. They've got a running game. Like everything, it seems like in New Orleans is coming together. And I'm happy to announce that the New Orleans Saints were my Super Bowl pick, and they are starting to look like the Super Bowl team that I expected from the beginning <laughs> of the season. Thank you very how much. Do you, how did you fact check that? Because I don't think you have the memory to know whether you picked. Them or I did, but I I just remembered after we started talking about legitimate Super Bowl champions, six and one. I'm like, oh yeah. I got New Orleans. They're great. <laughs> All right, guys. This one's near and dear to our heart. The Giants fell to one and seven mm. yesterday. They are. Um, they lost to the Redskins twenty to thirteen. The struggle continues. There have been a lot of rumors that the Giants were taking calls on Odell Beckham Jr. And as the season sort of spirals out of control, my question is: Am I tripping, or is this Giants Odell Beckham partnership? Does it need to come to an end? Should they consider trading OBJ? They just signed him like three days ago. <laughs> I don't. I don't get that. I genuinely do not get that. Like, why sign a player if within eight weeks of the season you want to trade them? You you know why? It's because with this recent NFL strategy of tanking that we've seen. I'm not going to mention all the teams, but we're seeing it kind of in Oakland right now. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, now these teams that are having bad seasons that don't have like a long-term future at quarterback. Obviously, Eli's getting to the end of his career, and most people expect that the Giants are going to draft somebody high. It becomes, okay, are they tanking? Like, that, that's the legitimate question that everybody's asking. And so, naturally, the next question is, okay, who are my great players that I can get rid of and be, A, worse so I can improve my draft status for a couple years, and then, B, set myself up for future years because I can roll over salary cap room from – this year to the next if I'm not paying a guy like OBJ. So that's the natural question. I think it's insane. There's no way they're going to trade OBJ. He's like the face of the Giants. He's, he's the face of the young fans in the NFL because of his image and because of his play. And so they're not going to get rid of him. And he's just so good in New York because of the entertainment value that he brings. You cannot trade him, and they won't trade him. But it is an interesting question for meatheads and knuckleheads like us to talk about. Yeah, no, the only other places that I could see him going is L.A. Uh, Odell is bigger than any market except L.A. or yeah. New York. He would be great in L.A. People would love him because be he's even way more L.A. He's way more Hollywood than he is New York. But I feel hey, you spend a lot of time in New York. What, what is people's perception of uh, OBJ? Do they absolutely love him? Or I could see, like, the New Yorker's personality, the way it's a little bit more like, what you talking about? What you doing? That they they wouldn't like, they like wouldn't, Gary Coleman. Yeah, yeah they, they wouldn't appreciate. <laughs> what you talking about, Willis? They wouldn't appreciate that uh, the Hollywood style quite as much as somebody who's more like just blue collar and tough. Yeah, no, I think there there is a little uh, feeling of we're not getting the results that like if you like it's just, people just care about winning. 
they don't give a damn what you do or what you act like if they're winning football games. So the Giants aren't winning football games. This is typically a winning organization. They are two-time Super Bowl champion over the last, what, 10 years? So, yeah, they they get a little, you know, itty with with Odell and some of the antics. But the thing is, their offensive line hasn't been playing well. Not so good. Eli has not been playing well, but he's on pace to be sacked for, like, a record number of times. Mm-hmm. So that's, like, where a lot of it lies. And, I mean, I get tanking for the salary cap purposes, but newsflash, New York, you're going to be picking top three anyway. I don't know if you've noticed, but... <laughs> you don't have to try to suck. You already... You don't have to try to suck. <laughs> your team sucks. <laughs> Keep your receiver until you get a good quarterback mm-hmm. and then see what it is from there. Saquon, yeah. he's the real deal. Yeah, I mean, I think we can all can agree to that. Mm-hmm. So if they get the offensive line help they need yeah. and a quarterback early in the draft next year that can do it, then... Yeah, you've got two key pieces on offense. You've got Saquon Barkley at running back. You've got OBJ at receiver. They're young, they're talented, they're exciting. Do not get rid of them. If anything, get rid of everybody else in the team. Keep those guys and then start over. You're already going to be bad, like you mentioned. You're already going to get a top three pick. You don't have to help out your case. Yeah, they're 4-21 and since the yacht pick, by the way. Wow. As an organization. Hey, great media take there. That was definitely the <laughs> downfall. <laughs> Four and 21. Before that, they were like, the, it was like the opposite. It was like about, 21 and six. How about what's their record since the uh, Lil Wayne, Eli Manning beef started? <laughs> right? I think that should be another tracker we need on the Tomahawk social media page. This is Lil Wayne. Remember, they got beef because uh, they're both from I New Orleans. Know. The New Orleans beef heard around and, the world. And uh, Lil Wayne came out and said that he'd always supported Eli, and then Eli goes out and acts like he doesn't know who he is. That hurt, that's hurtful, man. That is, that, is bull, that is bullshit. It's hurtful. That's like Hawk not knowing who Machine Gun Kelly is, man. He's been here forever. forever. Exactly. When we, when we rode against Eminem, I was riding with him. It was, mm-hmm. it was us versus Eminem. I'm with you. you know how hard it is to battle the rap god? <laughs> but I'm a, I have an alliance to my man MGK. Like you know what? If if it's if we're beefing with Eminem, that's just who we're beefing with. Slim Shady can get it too. Wow. Mm. Speak, preach. All right, Hawk. Studs of the week. I'm going to start it off and say that my stud of the week is none other than my draft mate, Adrian Pearson. 2007 draft with me. He's 33 years old. Somehow still playing. My wheels fell off a long time ago, but yes. he rushed for 149 yards. Tied for the third most in a game in NFL history by a player that is at least 33 years old. I don't agree with his offseason training. He's a marathon runner, but for some reason, it still works for him. He's <laughs> unbelievable. He's playing really well. The, the Redskins actually are surprisingly, I, in my opinion, going to be a sneaky team through the playoffs. Alex Smith is going to play well enough. They can run the football. They've got a very good defense. And uh, Adrian Peterson, he seems to be eternal. There is, a, there is an ageless quality to this man, and he is my stud of the week. Why do you think he's, able, he's been able to have the success he's had at 33? Well, I'm he's curious. a physical freak. I remember meeting him in college when he was at Oklahoma, and first of all, he looked the exact same. He's a grown man. He, he was like you know, 230. He's got 1% body fat. Every metric that the weight room – nerds do testing him is like genetically in the one percent of the bell curve he's he's way more talented than even a guy like andrew hawkins which is impossible to believe and he (laughs) also works really hard he's extremely dedicated to his craft which for anybody to be able to play that long you have to be you and i we were kind of part-time players we gave half-ass effort everywhere we went in the nfl and that's why we're not playing anymore this guy he brought all in he was all in and and he's still playing and he's still 
becoming the most prestigious award winner of all time, which is the Tomahawk Stud of the Week. Yeah, well, I, that's what I'm wondering because you're right. You had an entire off-season bit about how his off-training, his off-season training was stupid. Yeah, man. Hey, results. You can't argue with the results. That's what he would. That's what he tweeted back to me. He actually called me on my personal line and said, hey, man, you can't argue with my results. And I said, hey, touche. All right, for my stud of the week, Joe, I got to go with quarterback Patrick Mahomes. Mm. I know we've picked him multiple times, but the dude just keeps balling. He had over 300 yards. He may have been the only quarter, winning quarterback with that. And then also he threw for four more touchdown passes, which brings him to, I think, 26. And at this point of a season, there's only been two other people that have that many touchdown passes in like this fast through a season. I think it's Brady and Manning. Obviously, Peyton. Because <laughs> Eli. In case you're wondering. In case you were you were wondering at home. So shout out to Patrick Mahomes. He's still killing it. Gotta be the MVP, right? I mean, this is right like, now. He, in in my opinion, he is the clear MVP playing. If not even close, the second best team in the NFL. The only other guy that you could say is almost up there would be Jared Goff because their team is so good. But yeah, right. you, you have to say that their defense and the, all the people around him are giving him so much more help than uh, Patrick Mahomes is getting. Jared Goff would be get third in the MVP voting on the Rams. Wow. Okay. Right. You're going to give it to Jared Goff over Todd Gurley? Yeah, quarterback's more important. You're going to give it to Jared Goff over Aaron Donald, who's on pace for like 21 sacks from the D-tackle position? Uh, yeah, quarterback more important. <laughs> All right. I think Aaron Donald's exceptional. Best defensive player in the NFL. That's not what you said. You said he's a punk, and when you see him, you're going to punch him in the face. <laughs> so somebody ripped that audio and wow. tweeted to it. Good him. thing he's busy right now, so he doesn't have time to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that does it for today's edition of the Tomahawk Show. Make sure you tweet us using the hashtag Tomahawk. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Tomahawk Show. Um, we're, we're, we're pulling for guests for our next uh, Thursday episode. Right now it's down to The Rock, Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kim Kardashian. Who else did we have on the on the final list, Joe? There's two other names. I thought Barack Obama. He uh, sent me a text this morning saying he was trying to move some things around on his schedule. Okay. Yeah. So it was Obama and um, Keanu Reeves were the last yeah. two. So we'll make sure we announce that who we have. Head to our Twitter, retweet the Mountain Dew tweet because I want a Mountain Dew statue. I'm not even. I have zero shame about it. <laughs> make sure you join our listener league. We we'll have the results for our next show. Um, and tell you who the winners were for the week. Subscribe, rate us five stars, tell your friends about us. Joe, final thoughts. My final thoughts are Larry Fitzgerald scored, I think it was a two-point conversion, and he spiked the ball, which made news because he has never spiked the ball after scoring in his career. And he said it was because his oldest son decided to go to the Arizona State Fair rather than watching the Cardinals game. And it made me wonder, like, did his son go to every single Cardinals game forever? And was that why Larry Fitzgerald had the outburst? And it also made me wonder, is spiking the football a sign of disrespect? Is that something we don't want to do? Because after the game, Larry said he didn't show uh, a good example for his younger fans. And I always loved Barry Sanders growing up because he was a hand the ball to the official guy, act like you've been there. And I feel like that's probably who I would have been had I ever scored a touchdown in my life. But uh, these. So you mean to tell me, Joe, not to cut you off, but I'm going to cut you off. 
You mean to tell me someone who's never scored a touchdown, when you scored, your dream celebration would be to hand the ball to the referee? No, I, I never said my dream celebration. I just said if I would have been a guy like Barry Sanders or Andrew Hawkins and scored multiple touchdowns, I feel like I would have saved my energy after scoring because I would have been really tired and I wouldn't want to use any more than I had to. So I would have just handed the ball to the official, slowly meandered to the sideline, side got my drink of water, and sat down quietly. I was never a celebrate guy. I've celebrated a couple of times in Canada. In the league, I never really did much to celebrate with my teammates. And that's honestly one of my biggest regrets. Because in my mind, I, I wish I could go back. Because, yeah, I wish I would have done my instinct, which was to do every dance. In my mind, I was jinxing myself by celebrating. So I didn't do it. But there's so much work to put in. It's like, for all the – think about how much football I've played in my life, 20 years, how many routes, how many balls I've caught in life, in practice or whatever, just to have scored – what was it? Nine NFL touchdowns? Is that all you had? That's it. Surprised Nine. you didn't play longer. <laughs> <laughs> Nine NFL touchdowns. That's how many Todd Gurley had in the second half. <laughs> I wish I would have – as a matter of fact, notorious, my notorious celebration was not even it wasn't a celebration at all. It was me trolling Goodell where I didn't celebrate. <laughs> like, that was my best. I remember that one. That was good. So, yeah. I'm a part of a spike in the ball. Imagine Larry Fitzgerald retired and never have spiked the ball. Yeah. Come on now. I mean, he's, he's old school, but that's why he, he the people love him because he's just a workman like, you know, people can they do love him. relate. And then, they give all, and then they give all the endorsement deals to OBJ. Well, right. I mean, you don't need endorsement deals when you've made the money that Aaron, uh, Larry Fitzgerald has. Very true. Anyway, I need the endorsement deal. So go tweet the Mountain Dew tweet. We'll talk to you later. Nat, take us out. Joe, hawk yourself. <laughs>